Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about the vicious double murder of Barbara Songhurst and Christine Reed, two innocent and inseparable best friends brutally savaged on a peaceful riverside towpath. But who would want these two young girls dead, and why? Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 107, The Thames Towpath Murders, Part 1. Today, I'm standing by Teddington Lock on the south side of the River Thames, far beyond anywhere we've ever been to before. But oddly, every location, from Petersham Meadows, Oldham Lock, St Helena Pier, Duke's Hole and Teddington Lock Bridge right across Twickenham, Kingston and Hampton Hill, can be seen from Richmond Hill, where Kate Beagley watched her last of his sunset with the first date killer. At 215 miles long, the River Thames is the second longest river in Britain, stretching from Kemble, west of Oxford, right through the city of London to Falness Point on the east coast and the North Sea beyond. It's fast, wide, strong and deadly, rising and falling 23 feet a day and flowing faster than many boats. For many Londoners, a walk along the Thames can make you feel like you're in the country while still being in the city. As with the buildings heavily restricted, many stretches are full of wild fields, woodlands and deer parks. Of course, at weekends, the uneven towpaths are chock-a-block with lycra-clad twats and pricey bikes swearing at any dog who disrupts their land speed record. Sweaty-faced joggers, one step from a heart attack, who feel obliged to make that sound with every breath. And swarms of over-sugared seeds of Satan terrorizing the wildlife because their parents would rather see a duck stamped to death than hire a babysitter or do their bloody job. Thankfully, at other times of the week, being shielded by trees, shrubs and bushes, it's actually a very nice place for a quiet walk. With the Thames being tidal, initially built over 200 years ago, Teddington Lock is a triple lock between the Middlesex and Surrey sides of this 250-foot wide stretch of the river, allowing the safe passage of boats, as well as pedestrians, via two footbridges interconnected over a small island. And whereas the Teddington side has many homes, pubs and shops, 
The ham side of the lock is little more than an unlit, overgrown towpath, shrouded in a dense, dark thicket of trees and bushes, where an endless series of dog walkers, joggers, and casual strollers breathe in the fresh sea air. So it seems unthinkable that such a peaceful little spot could be the scene of a brutal double murder. But it was. As it was here, on the night of Sunday, the 31st of May, 1953, the two young girls would be brutally murdered. But the question wasn't how or who by, but why. As two loving and inseparable best friends, Barbara and Christine lived as they died, side by side. Barbara Songhurst was born in Teddington on the 29th of April 1937 as the middle child of 10 to Gertrude and Daniel, a loving couple married for 23 years who had stuck together through good times and bad. Being a good Anglican family of 12, crammed into a small white council house on a long tree-lined street in Hampton Hill, although the two eldest boys, Danny and Robert, had moved out, Arthur was on national service, and Doris was hospitalised with spinal tuberculosis. With only three bedrooms for Mum, Dad, Pamela, Edwin, John and Nina, with 16-year-old Barbara sharing a bed with her eldest sister Rose, this little terraced house at 75 Prince's Road was a squeeze for this family of eight. Having moved out of a tiny terrace at 18 Sydney Road just eight years earlier, since birth, and for the rest of her life, Barbara would live in and around Teddington, the place she called home. Life was busy, noisy and hard, as with their invalid father being confined to a steel jacket, having broken his back, with the compensation spent and unable to work for 10 years, as Gertrude was the full-time carer for the children and her husband, they lived off benefits and what the siblings could earn. Home life was difficult, but never unkind. And although a little undisciplined, it was only as dysfunctional as was expected from a big family in a small house, living but surviving in a difficult circumstance. But as with all of their children, Barbara was good, decent, and raised well. Having graduated with a school certificate from the Victoria Girls School, age 15, Barbara got a job as a shop assistant at Harwood and Hall's chemist shop in Hampton Hill, earning £1.15 a week. But just as all of her work-age siblings did, more than half of what she earned went to feed and clothe the family. Described by everyone as bubbly, fun and energetic, as a slim petite brunette, just shy of five foot tall, with a slender figure, a confident stance, a fashionable dress sense and a cheeky smile, Barbara was popular with the boys and she loved their attention. But being blessed with a forceful personality, she had held onto her virginity as being religious, she was saving herself for Mr. Wright. Barbara wasn't a silly little giggling girl who stumbled into trouble, as although she had a small childlike body and the excitable brain of a teen savouring her freedom, she also had an adult's wisdom which belied her tender years. As a local girl, she had some serious street smarts. She liked watching live music, but didn't venture any place she didn't feel safe. She liked thrills, but was never a bother to herself or anyone else. She freely cycled along the river, but rarely strayed far from the towpaths and bridges she trusted to get herself home. She stayed out late, but always kept her parents informed of her whereabouts. And although chatty and confident, she never, ever talked to strangers. In fact, being both sensible and inseparable, always by Barbara's side, was her best friend, Christine. 
Born two years and one month earlier, on the 18th of March 1935, Christine Rose Reed was the middle child of Herbert and Lucy. Living off Herbert's modest wage as a shop assistant, and with her housewife mother Lucy being deaf. They weren't well off, but their home life was always happy, loving and stable. Having scraped by at school, and being described as a little bit educationally challenged, 18-year-old Christine had found work as a factory hand in Hampton, earning a wage of £3.18 shillings a week, and just like her best pal, half of her wage went to support her family. Almost like a slightly taller twin, Christine was a slim petite brunette with olive skin, brown eyes, a small nose and a curly bob of hair. And although she also liked the boy's attention, she often got less than her bubbly buddy, being a little more shy, quiet and prim, but no less chatty once she got comfortable. Living a few roads apart, Christine and Barbara's life revolved around their friendship. Every moment of their free time was spent by each other's side. They ate, cried, prayed, and during their many sleepovers, they even slept together. And although both girls often stayed out late, neither of their parents were ever worried, as the girls were always honest about where they'd been, who with, when they would be home, and that, no matter what, these inseparable sisters would never be parted, even in death. Barbara Songhurst and Christine Reed were two innocent young girls living their ordinary little lives within the safety of the place that they had always called home. Nobody wanted them dead. And yet, for no known reason, someone would brutally savage both girls in a truly horrifying way. Long live the Queen. Eight years after the end of the Second World War, with the country smashed and battle scarred, its charred cities pockmarked with bomb craters, and a weary people struggling under the twin burden of an economic slump and a population boom. 1953 marked a new dawn for Britain. Over the sweet smell of cakes being baked, the excitable squeal of children playing, and the drab grey streets flecked with the patriotic red, white and blue of Union Jack Bunting, a joyous thrum rippled across the city in anticipation of the impending coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in just one week's time. This wasn't a party, this was a fresh beginning, and with the typically unpredictable British weather actually playing ball for once, being a bank holiday, with shorts on, tops off and work done, swarms of Londoners flocked to the banks of the River Thames for picnics, walks and to set up camp. It was a moment of great celebration. So one weekend prior, on Sunday the 24th of May, following a short spate of sexual assaults on lone females walking in isolated spots, a vicious sadistic attack occurred eight miles south of Teddington on Oxshot Heath, leaving a 14-year-old girl raped, bloodied and traumatised. But with very little evidence, the investigation came to nothing. And for now, such horrors would be put at the back of everyone's minds. The seven days before their deaths were unremittingly ordinary for the girls. They saw nothing strange, they heard nothing weird, and they met no one odd. Their families were fine, their friendship was solid, and their life was simple. On Sunday the 24th of May, as per usual, they went to church, had a roast, cycled and came home. Monday the 25th was a bank holiday, so with the shops shut, 
the day was much the same. Tuesday to Friday was a regular working week, so Barbara assisted at Harwood and Hall's chemist shop, Christine as an assembly line worker at a nearby factory, and each evening, as if by clockwork, the two best friends met up to sit, chat and giggle. On Friday the 29th, at the Blue Angel Cafe in Hampton Hill, a local hangout full of fizzy pop, rock and roll and pinball machines. John Wells, who was Christine's neighbour at number 8 Roy Grove, and her good friend for the last five years, invited both girls to a camping party that Sunday at Petersham Meadows. It would be a bit of fun with a few friends in a local place that they all knew. So both parents approved. And on Saturday the 30th, Barbara, Christine and their pal Joy Wolveridge got dressed in their finest and went dancing at York House, a rather grand stately home in Twickenham. With the band packed up by midnight, they cycled the two miles home, partially down the unlit and overgrown towpath. Which may sound dangerous, but it was a damn sight safer than sharing the potholed road with the nightly rumble of trucks and buses that thundered by. So at 12.45am, a little later than promised, both girls returned to 15 Roy Grove, as witnessed by Christine's father. And as per usual, Barbara stayed over. Sunday the 31st of May 1953 would be a glorious day. The sun was out, the skies were blue, the breeze kept the heat cool, and it would be a perfect day for a friendly little picnic at a mate's camping party. Waking up at a little after 9am in Christine's tiny bedroom, the two girls made their plans for the day. And as Christine dressed, Barbara cycled the eight minutes home to 75 Prince's Road. And at roughly the same time, they regaled their parents with last night's fun and news of today's picnic at Petersham Meadows. With tomorrow being a work day, they promised to be back in their own beds by 11pm, which both parents knew meant either midnight or just a touch later. At 10.30am, being fashionably yet comfortably dressed in blue jeans, a white coat, a yellow tartan blouse, flat-heeled shoes with white socks, and accessorized with a double row of imitation pearls and two brooches, one a patriotic pin for the Festival of Britain and a horseshoe for good luck. Being in a bright and perky mood, Barbara Songhurst left her home on her maroon-coloured Philips sports cycle. Likewise, being semi-sensibly dressed in dark blue slacks, a yellow woolen cardigan, a white blouse, white ankle socks and a pair of low-heeled black shoes. As Christine cycled away on her cream and blue BSA sports model bicycle, her mood was typically upbeat, happy and carefree. At 11am, they met somewhere in Teddington and they headed to John's picnic at Petersham Meadows, which they would return to three times that day. At 1.30pm, both girls briefly returned to Barbara's home, although no one can be sure why. But with the shops shut, it may have been to find a spare battery or a bulb for her broken bicycle light. At 1.45pm, they left again. They were still happy and laughing. And by 2pm, they had returned to 15 Roy Grove for lunch with Christine's parents. At 4pm they left, and at 5pm they returned. But this back and forth between each other's homes was very typical of the two girls, who often flick-flacked across the town, travelling as and where the mood took them. But not for a single second were they ever apart. At 7.30pm, as Christine cycled away from her home, down a side alley, between 14 and 15 Roy Grove, with Barbara by her side. That was the last time that Herbert Reed would ever see his daughter 
alive. Roy Grove to Petersham Meadows was a familiar four-mile route that the two girls had already cycled twice that day and hundreds of times, both day and night, over the years that they had been best friends. Scooting down Uxbridge Road, they snuck across Bushy Park for a peek of the deer, headed through the hubbub of the high street, went down Ferry Road, and at the river they crossed the two footbridges over Teddington Lock, turned left at the lockkeeper's cottage, and followed the Thames north, up an overgrown and uneven towpath, past Oldham Lock, Eelpie Island, and twenty minutes later, just past Duke's Hole, they would reach a little place known as Log Farm, in Petersham Meadows. At 8pm, as they dumped their bikes in the long grass, and sauntered up towards the joyous sounds of a tinny transistor radio, the delicious smell of fire-roasted sausages, and sidled up to the campsite to say hi to the boys. Neither girl would know the significance that Duke's Hole, or even St. Helena Pier, just half a mile north, would play in the final days and hours of their lives and deaths. Petersham Meadows was a large open field, just off the Thames towpath with a small farm for felling trees on the south side, water-filled gravel pits at the front, and surrounded by a thick line of trees. That day, although typically the bright sunshine had been masked by a thick grey dollop of cloud, the field was still relatively full of campers, and although the numbers had dwindled since the dusk had begun to fall, the nearest other camping party was only about 150 feet away. As before, the party was small, just five chums in total. John Wells had erected a canvas tent for the three boys to sleep in. Albert Sparks was chopping firewood with a small, slightly blunt axe. And Peter Warren was supposedly the chef, but most of the sausages ended up raw or burnt to a crisp. And that was it. Just like in the seven days before their deaths, they saw nothing strange, they heard nothing weird, and they met no one odd. This was just a simple little picnic with some old and new friends around a campfire by a river. Being teenagers and young men, there was a little drinking, some giggling, some kissing, a few larks, japes and hijinks, but it was all pretty innocent stuff for such virtuous girls. Only this moment of fun and hilarity would be the last that the two girls would ever share. With little of what was left of the sun having set almost two hours earlier, with only a hint of a moon, a dense cloud cover having descended and being nowhere near a single flickering streetlight, headlamp or brightly coloured bulb in celebration of this coming Tuesday's coronation, the five pals were only illuminated by the alluring glow of the crackling campfire. Darkness was upon them, and as the silence between the laughter grew longer, the party wound down, and the girls knew it was time to go. Having heard a distant clock tower strike its eleventh chime, the girls knew that they would be slightly, but not unreasonably late if they set off now, which they did. With the woods, river and towpath being pitch black at this time of night, as the batteries to Barbara and Christine's bicycle lights had run flat, and being unable to find any spares earlier that day, Peter kindly loaned his bike light to Barbara. It wasn't a great little lamp. In fact, its dull yellow glow barely shone further than a few feet beyond her thin front wheel. But it was better than nothing. At roughly 11.15pm, having waved the girls goodbye, John, Albert and Peter finished the sausages, turned off the radio, and amidst the soft rustle of their sleeping bags, all three went to sleep.
The last sighting of Barbara and Christine was roughly 15 minutes later, just shy of Oldham Lock. As two pals, Basil Nixon and Sheila Danes lay on the grass. From the north, they heard the rickety clatter of two bikes riding in tandem, with two young girls loudly chatting back and forth. As up front, a single dull yellowy bike light bobbed along the uneven towpath towards Teddington Lock. And as they were both slowly swallowed up by the dark, dense woodland, with that, the two girls had disappeared. At 8.15am, as George Costa, a foreman for the Port of London Authority, was working at Radnor Gardens, one mile north of Teddington Lock, just 20 feet from the riverbank, he spotted something floating in the shallow water. Seeing a white coat, dark hair, a yellow tartan blouse, and pale white skin. It was unmistakably the body of a young girl. Transferred to Richmond Mortuary, and having already been declared as missing by her parents. Later that morning, Gertrude Songhurst confirmed that the clothes, the brooch pin, and the stone-cold body which lay before her, as that of her daughter, Barbara. She was dead, and had been in the water for nearly nine hours. But she hadn't drowned. And seeing only her baby's beautiful face, under a black rubber sheet, the worst of the young girl's injuries were deliberately hidden from view. At 12.10pm, in the presence of Detective Superintendent Herbert Hannon, and conducted by Dr. Arthur Mant, the autopsy of 16-year-old Barbara Songhurst took place. Her face and head had two obvious wounds. Under a one-inch gash to the top of her skull, a crushing blow had cratered the bone and hemorrhaged her brain. And under a curved two-inch wound between her left eye and ear, a second swift strike had split her left cheekbone as if, without warning, she had been forcibly struck by something heavy and hard, but dull. Perhaps the blunt end of an axe. On her torso, her tartan blouse and white coat, now sodden with the silty filth of the river, was only fastened by the top button. But through its once white cloth, three deep stab wounds could be clearly seen across the back. Each one having punctured her left lung, her right lung, and right into her heart, with several blades of severed grass poking out of the lowest of the wounds. With her socks still on, but her shoes missing, the raging river had rearranged part of her clothing, but with her top exposing her midriff, her blue jeans unbuttoned, and the crotch of her thin cotton knickers ripped open, there was no denying that this innocent little girl had been raped as she lay dying. And with a series of rough cuts to her hymen, bruises up her inner thighs, and her vagina full of semen, with her very last breath, she had tried to put up a fight as her attacker had took her virginity and her life. And once he was done, with her dead and raped, a series of long lacerations down her legs, buttocks, back and heels suggested that she had been dragged along the towpath down the side of the riverbank into the tidal waters below and like an unwanted piece of rubbish she was dumped in the river. Her shoes were gone. Her other brooch had vanished. Her bike was missing. And so was Christine. The murder of Barbara Songhurst was a perplexing mystery. No one saw her attack. No one heard her rape. No one witnessed her murder or disposal. And no one wanted her, or her best friend, dead. 
They were two innocent young girls living their ordinary little lives in the place they felt safe, who had been brutally attacked in an isolated spot on a public towpath by a person or persons unknown. This should have been a fresh start for everyone, a time of celebration, but a violent killer was in their midst. And just one day from the Queen's coronation, the newspapers were all about a dead little girl. But the rape and murder of Barbara Songhurst didn't make any sense. If it was premeditated, the murder location would have been somewhere dark, dense and isolated. Perhaps a spot on the towpath up near the lock. But if her rape was the motive, why did he attack two girls on bikes at the same time rather than just one? What if the other screamed or got away? If the murder was personal and the brazen double murder of two little girls was his aim, why did the attacker strike Barbara twice across the head and face with the blunt end of an axe to render her semi-conscious, only to violently stab her to death with a knife? Why keep her alive, only to then make her dead? And with no footprints, no fingerprints, no witnesses, no sounds heard, no sights seen, and no weapons found, Barbara's murder would remain a mystery. And yet, as a second little girl would wash up on the riverbank, and the murder location was uncovered, it became very clear that as two loving and inseparable best friends, Barbara and Christine had lived as they died, side by side. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was part one of three of the Thames Towpath murders, with the next part next week. But if you fancy learning some more details about the case and enjoy half an hour of utter waffle, stay tuned for Extra Mile. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Bridget O'Keefe, Jacqueline Rutland, Samantha Woodhouse, and Grace Ashby Walker. I thank you all for your support. It's very much appreciated. A thank you to Kay Fillmore for your very kind donation, and to Steve-O and Patsy, who donated by the supporter link in the show notes. Thank you to all of you. And of course, a huge thank you to all of the supporters of the show in whatever way you choose, whether by Patreon, donations, reviews, or simply by listening to this podcast and saying, yeah, I like that. It was okay. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Kolami. Is it time for a yawn? I think it could be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, hello, everyone. Welcome to Extra, Extra Mile. Oh, we're back. We're back. Windows open. Oh, they have been fighting with the crows. We've got crows above us today. And they've been doing their... Doing their chatting back, back and forth. And uh, I'm up early, obviously, trying to beat my neighbour before he gets up very soon and puts his engine on i'm trying to beat the uh the crows today so uh they shut up for a bit uh and then they were like yeah, 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 all over the bloody podcast so that was quite annoying so i've been i might have to re-record some of this last week's show i had to redo almost all of it that bit when i when i said i'm gonna have to redo it i did i went back and redid the lot i might redo some of this as well but i think it was okay i think it went well i hope you enjoyed that story it was um it was an, it's an interesting one. Uh, let me put on my tea, as always. Ooh, what's that? Oh, I thought it was a big spider coming in then. I can see something crawling around. I think it's just a bit of lasagna. Uh, it's spider season, of course, which we're all loving, aren't we? Spiders everywhere. Spiders crawling around everywhere. They, they've got their uses. Getting rid of the flies. Especially when you're... Oh! You're moored up by the poo factory, which I am not anymore, thank God. Not by the poo factory. Uh, not really a fan of spiders. Don't really like them. I, I pre- I've got my uh, my duster that I use, which I find is a more humane way to kind of usher them out. Because you get, I get my little duster. It's like a feather duster. Not a feather duster. It's kind of a an artificial one. And you, you put them on it, and then they they, they st- they can't really run on it they they kind of crawl on it so you can kind of put them on it and then you can kind of shake them off and it it doesn't hurt them and it you know which is good but there's a lot of spiders it's spider week so uh thank god we haven't had any big ones so right what's going on what's going on in this wonderful little pathetic world that i live in right ah uh, what's good had a socially distant coffee with my brother the other day which is very good enjoy that nice nice to see uh my short and not as attractive brother. <laughs> uh, uh, that was very good. Uh, we went to Costa Coffee. Uh, we went down, to, uh, went to sit next to a table. We were all very good. We got our masks on. And uh, I noticed that uh, two men had left the table, but that one had left his phone, his wallet on the table. So I said to the, the Costa guy who was there, uh, he'd got his visor on and his gloves on and all that. And he was he was cleaning all the tables. So I said, oh, um, just to say the guy's left his phone his wallet on the table and it was phone and wallet and it was underneath his uh n95 mask the the covid mask and i was like he's left his phone his wallet on the table so the guy came over picked up the phone and the wallet using the mask the other man's mask was like oh it's really bad really bad i think i, I think some people some people still don't understand that like i don't touch anything i sanitize my hands and i don't touch anything and i like even like if I'm at, at saying if I'm at the supermarket and I'm buying stuff because you've got to use the till and because I want the points on my phone I always before I go in I sanitize my hands and I sanitize my phone 
I never thought I'd turn into one of these people because I'm not a, I'm not one of those weirdos who walks around hand sanitizing all the time. But I am during the, the, this pandemic, and I sanitize my phone. And then you you you've got to use the screen, but you you remember that you touch the screen to add in your points and all that. But then you've got to use your phone, so you're adding the virus to your phone. So I've sanitized my phone as well. <sighs> trying to be very good. Trying to be very good, aren't we all? Aren't we? All? We're all doing our bit to help each other to not pass it on. Some people not as well as others, but you know. Uh, anyway, right. Uh, so yeah, hopefully, Murder Mile Walks is back on in October, start of October. I hope on a small level, I'm going to have to restart learning my lines because I haven't done a show in six months. So I've God knows if I can remember it. Uh, if it all goes well. Uh, I won't be. I, I'm. I'm probably not going to be doing private tours and things like that because uh, you know the the podcast takes up a lot of time. So I'm not too sure at the moment. Uh, but I'll definitely be doing my Sunday tours as long as they last for a bit. If all goes well, I might start doing. I think I mentioned it months and months ago. I'd almost. I'd actually rolled it out and then had to roll it back because of the pandemic. I was going to do the special podcast listeners walks, where it's not scripted at all. We kind of just little group of us go on a two-hour saunter around town i show you some locations if there's places that are near that you want to see from the podcast we'll do it we'll do a walk it's not i I don't have anything prepared i can just use what's in my head might have some pictures with me i don't know so i might start doing that because i'd I'd look forward to that it'll be a little bit easier to do than the the regular walk and a a little something different for me as well ah what else has gone on Last weekend, in preparation for this three-parter, I did a 62-mile cycle to visit and film all of the locations for this three-parter. Uh, so some of the photos, what I'll do is I'll post them online on the social media, but the bulk of all of them, all the original crime scene photos, all the really interesting photos uh, are going to go on Patreon. I know you're probably going, bloody Patreon, but you know it helps support the podcast and for just just three dollars as little as three dollars a month uh you can get all the goodies uh you know uh, the monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday there's stuff going out depending on what level you're on all crime scene photos stuff that i never share anyone else you get all the original script to the series you get uh, uh the episodes on mondays rather than uh thursdays and they're ad free as well so no annoying adverts which is very good uh, uh, and the the twenty five dollar patrons got a couple of those. Every Friday I do extra. <gasps> I haven't I haven't uploaded today's one. I'll do it now. Uh, the uh, for twenty five dollar patrons you get extra videos each week, which I don't sh- I don't share on my YouTube channel. They are secret. They're called the secret patron videos, and they're only for the twenty five dollar patrons, and they will remain that way. Whoa, rather good. Let's let's do the tea. T T T T T. Uh, I made the mistake the other day. I was rushing and I made tea and coffee combined. I put coffee in, then I put a tea bag in, and I made both. And I know that's a thing, but it's bloody disgusting, I tell you that much. Anyway, important things. Oh, yeah, you bastard. Look at that McVitie's, you bastard. So I went shopping yesterday and I, I thought, I need... I need a cake for my recording. So actually I picked up some chocolatey shortbread, which is very nice. I've eaten one of those. But then I went past and I, I forgot. Oh, made by McVitie's Lyle's Golden Syrup Sticky Pudding Cake. Oh my God. It was either this or the Jamaica cake. And I do love Jamaica cake, but I, this reminds me of my childhood. Like my summers spent with grandma and granddad. This is, they'd always have, the grandma would make, always make lovely chocolate cakes that stuck to your mouth, but we always had this as well. And there's a little symbol on it and it says, try me with custard. Oh, McVitie's, you bastards. You know I'm going to eat all of this in one go. <laughs> Why can't they sponsor me? That would be great. Uh, anyway, uh, what else we got? Uh, just to say this is very exciting. Uh, you can now... Um, Apparently, I haven't worked out how. If you listen to this via Acast, uh, you can review the podcast via Acast, which is great. Um, if you are, if you use Podcast Addict, and I, I, I've seen that many people have, which is very good. I'm, I'm watching those come in, so that's lovely. And I, oh, I do read every review. Uh, you can review on Podcast Addict now, and Podcast Addict have even put in a link on there, so you can you can support the podcast by uh, supporting through Patreon, which is great. It's a everything's all being connected up which is great uh so oh i should apologize i um 
Acast set up a new thing called Supporter, which is the thing I mentioned earlier on, where you can support the show. You can, you can. It's not a weekly donation. It's like one-off donations. You know, if you say, if you say, I'd, I'd love to support the podcast and give five pounds, you do that, and in return, you get. Uh, I'll put. Uh, a mention of you in the episode you've just seen it on there with steve and patsy thank you steve and patsy i apologize i thought the system emails me to say when i get donations i didn't realize that it doesn't do that so i've just got it and i've realized you donated like a week or two ago so it's it's a bit late this uh my thank you but here it is uh i'm just getting used to the system uh but yeah no so uh um if you downloaded the episode last week at the start of the the episode, or any episode last week, you would have heard me going, I just want to say thank you so much for donating to the Murder Mar podcast. And I listened to it and was like, what the bloody hell is that doing there? I, Acast have asked, asked, the system asked me to record something. They said record a little message, so I did. Thinking it was a message for when people have donated and then they hear this that's what i would assume but it wasn't they used they put it at the start of my show and i was like why is this here and i was like oh fuck so i had to i had to go in and record a new one so the new the one you hit you might hear now i'm not putting that in that's acast acast deal with that i don't have anything to do with that i even i was surprised that it was there but it's there but if you did want to support the show one-off donation you can put a little comment in there i'll put your name in the next show i'm working on which might be a uh, part two of this i'm working on at the moment and uh that's that's one way to do it one way to, i know some people have asked because some people don't have paypal and things like that but but either way not essential at all uh i, I love reviews or is useful on itunes or, or however you want to support the show or just say just say to your friends i like this podcast i like this podcast Right, let's do some questions, which, as you know, I will almost certainly cock up. Uh, so, let's do them. Uh, question number one. Get yourselves ready. Ooh, that cake looks good. Ooh, no, hang on. Tea. I've got tea. God, I can't do anything without my tea. Oh. There we go. Ah, oh, I left the spoon in too long, and now it's gone. Oh, the spoon's gone. Thermo hot. Thermo thermo hot there we go pop that there oh cripes okay question number one what job did barbara do so what did barbara do as a job that's a better way of saying it question one what did barbara do as a job it's all quite easy questions i think question two what did christine do as a job Question three. What two brooches did Barbara have on her top? I always find the word brooch weird because it's spelt brooch. But no one ever says brooch. We say brooch. So why isn't it B-R-O-C-H as opposed to B-R-O-O-C-H? Question four. What was the name of the farm in Petersham Meadows where the picnic took place? Question five, why wouldn't Barbara, uh, why couldn't Barbara's father work? Question six, what was the name of the cafe where John invited the girls to the picnic? Question seven, what was Christine's middle name? Well done if you get that one. That was snuck in right at the start. Question eight. What was the what did the girls see in Bushy Park as they cycled through? Question nine. Uh, John Wells invited the girls to the picnic, but name the other two boys who were at the picnic. I say boys, they were young, all young men, all in the early 20s. Uh, question 20. What did Pete... I just realised I, I I almost buggered up the next question with the next ne- first and the the last answer with the next question. Okay, what did one of the boys loan to Barbara? What did one of the boys at the picnic loan to Barbara? Uh, if you're good, you, if you if you can have uh, obviously it's John Wells was one of the boys, but if you can have their first names and last last names, that would be lovely. That would be great. 
Right, okay. Um, normally I'd go through all the stuff that I've uh, got to say about this case, but because it's a three-parter and uh, I'm still, I've, I've done all the research for part two and three and I've kind of mapped it out, but sometimes I add stuff in and like with this episode, I, I kind of took stuff out and I moved it to the later episodes. So uh, I want to be really careful about this. So I'm not going to die... I'm not going to dive in too much to this stuff. Uh, but what I'll do is I'll just, just talk about the case itself. So I obviously knew about this case for many years. Uh, had it on my kind of back pile. I've got a kind of back pile of uh, uh, cases that I want to look into. But obviously because I started in Soho and then it became the West End. And now now Murder Mile is more kind of, kind of uh, Soho across West London. Uh, and this is still technically West London, even though even though the postcodes are slightly off, it's still classified as West London. So I, I'm having that. So I knew about this case for years, always wanted to do it. The bulk of the files were open at the National Archive, so I was like, great, I'll look at that. Um, they're very good, quite detailed. I, I did my usual thing, so I hadn't, I didn't go looking at any documentaries about this i didn't f open up someone else's book and go oh i'm gonna copy down i'm just gonna spend a week copying down what's in the book i think that's a i think that's a bad way to research because you're not really my way is to really think you think your way through it think around everything if you don't if you don't know things from the start i i find that finding getting all the pieces kind of piecemeal bits and pieces you kind of you're in a scattergun approach and then you have to funnel it down so i find that really useful uh, because sometimes you see details like like stuff about the brooches, the bike light stuff. I spent days working on the bike, things to do with the bike lights. So uh, all these little details really, really help tell the story. Um, so um, that's what I did. The, the files were a mess as always. There was, as always, there was an invigilation file. So I had to go into the special room in the archives where you have to ask permission to go in, and they lock you in, and there's a big camera over you. Uh, because it was all the all the crime scene photos and the autopsy pictures now were horrible really horrible um but really useful as well they the original crime scene photos so what i did last weekend was i did that big 62 mile cycle went down to, down the thames uh cycled along i went to petersham meadows first took some pictures there for me, it's good. That's that's why I like it. I, I, I find it really useful to go to the locations, stand there, because you can read it in a book. You can go, oh, and then, you, you know, you can Google it if you want to. But there's nothing like standing there. You get a sense of it. And I was on my bike anyway. So I cycled from Petersham Meadows to uh, Teddington Lock, the murder location. Not a spoiler, because obviously I mentioned it at the start of episode one. Uh, and I did the circuit, worked out the distance, uh, how long it would have taken them. Uh, and it's interesting. It's like some parts of the towpath, especially near the city, are tarmacked. But that section is very rickety, very old, very uneven. Like a lot of it is just stone and rubble. Uh, it's very overgrown. There's uh, kind of water pits to the left hand side and to the right is the river. There's no there's no kind of barrier on there so you can easily fall into the water in some places it's very very tight and thick with trees and the trees are not only on either side it's overhanging so you can cycle side by side but at points you some points especially with the the nettles being out sometimes you have to go single file uh so that was interesting to see the route and then i made it to teddington lock uh and I, i've been there before and you know the teddington towpath the 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 footbridges and i was like oh, okay it's here somewhere and i got the original crime scene photos which will be on the patreon uh and they're interesting but i was like well where is this place because it all looked very different obviously this is 1953 and we're now in 2020 so you know places do change so i got the photo there and i was kind of uh holding it up to my eyes on my phone and then pulling it down i kept moving and moving and moving i thought well where is it i can't see it anymore all the buildings had shifted and things like that they're not uh and there was like um uh the uh like the the the, the levers for the lock and things like that did slightly shifted and some weren't there anymore because they changed the lock i was like where is it and then i kept moving back and back and back and then all of a sudden i was in this kind of thicket of trees and i just went oh shit 
like the path made sense the building was there the 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 lever for the the uh the lock had actually been replaced but there was a kind of a a wooden bollard that was there that was that was still what it was used from they'd just basically broken it off the uh the bit the the slope down to the water was still there and i was like shit i'm standing right in the place where the murderer was and literally as i I turned to my left and it's like that's where the murder and the rape happened as well it's horrible but that was interesting so i did that went over the bridge uh i went up to uh, I'm trying to not give too much away I, I visited a lot of routes that day but I also went up to Barbara and uh, uh, Christine's house so Christine's over in Roy Grove that was interesting because all the number I had to ask a lady I was like where's number 15 because it was all I could find was up to 14 and everything was out of sequence and it was they got one side of the street is straight the other side of the street is curved and it's kind of even numbers on one side odds on the other and then she was like it's that 15 is that one there so i discreetly took a video there and took some pictures which is good and that that meant i was able to see the route of where they uh, so i followed the route of from roy grove back down into town i was able to see how close barbara and christine lived from each other interesting looking at their houses now it's, it's still very similar to as it was uh visited the kind of places that they hung out in teddington town as well all their little routes um but w- 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 walking these routes is really useful so um uh just before i started watching this i saw that uh, uh not very good true crime series called murder maps had done a uh a piece on it oh they I mean, they did one on the blackout ripper and it was so shit oh why do they bother it's it's very tabloid anyway they've done one on this uh and I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll watch it because it'll, it'll, you know, re- maybe maybe there's there's some things in there that I, you know, I hadn't thought of, or let's go through it. And then in the, if if you watch it, I mean, don't watch it, but if you watch it, there's a piece, and they, uh, well, I'm gonna try not to make this a spoiler. It's a slight spoiler. Um, they have in the story, they have the two girls cycling on the towpath, and then they split. And I went, oh, maybe. Maybe I've missed something because they, you know, they're, they're skimming across all the details, but they've pointed out that the girl split, and I was like, "The girl, did the girl split? I didn't see that." So I went through all my notes. I was like, "The girls didn't split," and then, luckily, because I'd walked the route, I started going. I, I went back and I started going through the route in my head, and I started planning it out in my head and going, "Okay, two girls on the towpath. They're going here. They're going home. They both live together. Uh, only one of them has a bike light." And I started planning all that out and trying to work out what order they were they were in on their bikes. All these little details that are useful following the towpath. And then I worked out they never split. The girls never split up. What the TV series had done is, this will make sense in the later part of the series, but because, because of in what way the murders happened, they've just naturally assumed that at some point the girls split. But the girls didn't split. They never split, and there's no reason for them to split. And I'll, do you know what? I'll probably point that out in a later episode. But it's just that they, they'd made this arbitrary decision that oh well, the girls must have split up, but they hadn't bothered to look at the facts. <sighs> Even like I, I looked at a couple of couple of blogs and pieces out there where they, they it, every time you look at the Thames Towpath murder, you will see uh, they've put in a fit picture of the footbridge, and you or or even worse, they've put in a picture of the bridge down at St Helena Pier which is about a mile um, actually no it's uh it's about two and a half two and a bit miles north they get, people do that they go oh it's in Richmond Thames or sure, we'll put in that picture but the footbridge doesn't have any connection to the story at all the footbridge is the place that they would have crossed had they not been murdered it's just a, that was their route home but it has nothing to uh, for the twenty-five dollar uh, patrons, there's a little video I'll post about that, and you'll see that. And it's I'll, I, I'm pointing out where everyone says, "Oh, this is the murder location," but it's not. It's not there at all. It's way off. It's just it's just people are being lazy. They just go, "Oh, well, it's Teddington Lock, so it's roughly here." Which is why I grabbed the original crime scene picture and I was like, "Where is it? Where is it exactly?" And I literally stood in his shoes in the killer's shoes and in the location and just thought oh i tell you what it gives you a chill it really does it's horrible 
Uh, so where did I go? Yeah, so I did uh, 75 Prince's Road over in Teddington, which is still there. 15 Roy Grove. I also went through Bushy Park, which I won't ruin the question about because we've got that coming up. But uh, the, the killer himself also visited there a couple of times. What else did we do? Uh, these will be coming up soon. So Canbury Park I did, which is not too far away. Uh, went through Radnor Gardens, uh, which is not too far from the, uh, the, the the picnic site. And it was kind of close to where uh, Barbara's body was found. Uh, went past Oldham Lock, which was on the route between Petersham Meadows and uh, Teddington Lock. And that will come back into the story later on. What else did we go? I went past Duke's Hole. I need to go and film that this weekend because I, w- I went past it and didn't really think about the significance, but actually I need to re-film something on that. And obviously there's loads of pictures on Teddington Lock. What else did we have? I think that's it. I think that's all of it. I don't want to give away too much because uh, there's, a, there's a lot here. So, okay, let, let's, let's do the questions. Uh, yeah, let's do the questions. Okay, uh, question number one. What did Barbara do as a job? The answer was, she was a shop assistant in a chemist's called Harwood and Hall in Hampton Hill. Question number two. What did Christine do as a job? Christine was a factory worker uh, on an assembly line. Question three. What two brooches brooches, did Barbara have on her top? She had a horseshoe brooch and a festival of Britain. Uh, Obviously, the festival of Britain was two years earlier, so 1951, but she still still had the pin. Uh, That was kind of a a post-war kind of celebration of innovation and stuff like that. Uh, Question four. What was the name of the farm in Petersham Meadows where the picnic took place? It was called Log Farm. Very imaginative name because it was a a logging farm. Uh, Question five. Why couldn't Barbara's father work? He had broken his back and was confined to a steel jacket. Question six. What was the name of the cafe where John invited the girls to the picnic? It was the Blue Angel. Question seven. uh, What was Christine's middle name? It was Rose. Question eight. What did the girls see in Bushy Park as they cycled through? I saw this as I was cycling through there as well. Uh, Lots of deer. It's a deer park. It was interesting. Yeah, I had to stop my bike and wait because... uh, the the uh the buck is it the buck the the male deer was there and he got all of his all of his lady deers with him and I was like oh go really quietly they were just having a little feed they're they're quite calm but you know you've got to be careful around them uh question seven did I do this question seven what was Christine's middle name it was Rose oh no I did do that because I've just on the I've just done deer haven't I God idiot question nine (laughs) john wells invited the girls to the picnic but name the other two boys uh they were albert sparks and john and peter warren albert sparks and peter warren my energy has just plummeted i think it's because i want cake question 10 uh what did peter loan barbara at the picnic it was a front bike light. You're probably saying, why didn't he loan her a better bike light? But don't don't forget, this is the 1950s. Your batteries weren't particularly good. Things were a little bit bulky. The lights, like the ones we've got now, are like like one I've got on my bike is brilliant. You, you know, you, you shine it and it shines like about f- like 500 feet ahead in a pin sharp. But those ones would have been a bit scattergun. So, uh, yeah. I remember those, not the ones from the 50s, but I remember the ones from the 70s and they weren't particularly good. Uh, So I think that is it. I'm not going to do any more because I don't want to ruin the series in case I cock it up. So um, that is the end. I hope you enjoyed that. 
Uh, I'm going to now sit and edit this. Oh, I'm out having some some drinks tonight, and and I think there's um, some drinks with the beard on a, a Sunday. So I'm going to try and get all this done. So hopefully it's ready for Monday. That's my target, and then we can start again with the next two episodes. Right, that's me done. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, stay safe. Be happy. Be lucky. Uh, and enjoy life. Uh, eat some cake. Drink some tea. Lots of love. Bye bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.